a lot of people, they need help to take that extra step because they don't know, how do I get from this fear to my freedom? That's John Collier, decorated cop turned inmate turned minister in this episode of the Bold Idea Podcast. Put your faith to work. This is the Bold Idea Podcast with ideas, interviews, and inspiration to bring your bold ideas to life. Here are your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Hello, hello, hello. This is Larry Gates. And Armin Asadi. And we're here with another episode of the Bold Idea Podcast to help you put your faith to work to trust God to bring a bold idea to life. And this episode today is not going to be about entrepreneurialism. It's not going to be about, uh, you know, testing any idea in the marketplace or any of that kind of stuff. This is going to get right down to the heart. And uh, boy, we have a guest on the program today who has really walked a lot of different uh, different mazes. He was a decorated law enforcement officer, served as the bodyguard to the governor of Indiana, and then he became a prisoner. He'll tell the story about how that happened. But having come out of prison, then he now is founder of Father's Love Ministry, author of the book Inside Out of Father's Love. And we just want to welcome to the program John Collier. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm happy to be here. John, it's so good to have you uh, on the program. And, you know, you have had quite quite a journey in your life. Uh, you know, you've been a decorated uh, police officer, served, served the governor of Indiana as a bodyguard, later to be found a criminal, thrown into prison, uh, coming out of prison, meeting the Lord, and starting the Father's Love Ministries. Now, there's a lot to unpack here because you— can you kind of take us through the story of how you got from there to where you are yeah, now? I can, I can do that. Let's let's kind of start with a, a synopsis of my childhood. Um, my parents got married pretty young. Both of them were actually too young. Mm. My mother was actually 16 when my folks got married, and they ran away from home, so to speak, to get married. And, and I came along when she was 17. My father was a, a kid from the other side of the tracks, high school dropout, could barely read or write. And they seemed to get a good start, but about three years into the marriage, um, I was, well, when I was about three, also I'll say four years into the marriage, but I was age three when I, my earliest memories of violent episodes um, started to occur with my father beating my mother. Mm. Now, I had a, a sister that was also um, a year younger than me at the time. So I'm three years old, she's two years old, and that's when this, this behavior starts. And there was a lot of other things involved. My father was uh, pretty dysfunctional. He abused alcohol and drugs, and he was a womanizer, and he was a real bad dude. All the good stuff you expect in dad, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, it, and it just didn't turn out that way. And mm. as I grew older, uh, as they tried to make the marriage work, you know, I really loved my dad as a kid. I remember sure. that. I remember just vying for his attention, wanting his approval. Um, but that behavior continued and until about the age of eight years old when my parents divorced and my mother moved away. Um, my father, he, w- he went to prison. Um, he actually had been in and out of jail and prison a, it, three times he had gone to prison. Mm. And so he didn't have a very colorful past. But during that time, uh, when we moved away, I felt safe for a while. My mother remarried uh, when I was about 10 or 11 and that lasted about a year when, when things got bad again. And as a result, I began to act out and run away from home. And the first time I ran away from home, my mother stayed in the marriage. 
and uh, and I ran away again. I just I think as a kid, I felt the only way to be safe was to get out of that house and run away again. Second time I'd run away from home, she had left left her husband at the time, and I didn't have a real plan. All I knew was I wanted to get away, and she had moved from the town we were living in at that time. And in the middle of the night, here I am, sneaking into her bedroom, taking her car keys, rolling the car down the driveway. And <laughs> now you were how old to, at this point? I was about 12 years old. 12, 12 years old. Okay. Yeah. Just high enough to see could, over. Could, the I was going to ask you, could you wheel. see over the dash? <laughs> <laughs> just, just barely. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I drove the car about 150 miles that night. And ended up parking behind a church of all places. Now, had you driven a car before that? Never. No, so, okay, first, so you did 150 miles. <laughs> first time First driving. time out. First time. Uh, that first no, stop no sign had to be pretty scary. I, I think he deserves a Boy Scout badge for that. Or something. Oh, yeah, this is bragging rights for a 12-year-old. <laughs> Somehow I kept it on the road and I kept it together. And that night I slept in the front seat and only to awaken with a policeman standing there outside the glass looking in at me. And uh, the, the law caught up with me pretty fast. Did he think you had been abandoned by a parent? Um, he didn't really know what to expect, although, you know, once he got me to open the car door and I got out and we started talking, uh, he put two plus two together. It didn't take him long to find out that I had run away from home. And, Did he give you respect yeah. for driving 150 <laughs> miles? <laughs> Well, he, he did seem to care about me a lot, so I'll oh. take that as, as respect from him. Okay. But but that police officer who actually uh, caught up with me that morning and, and brought me in, he, he of course, he had to spend some time with me and bring me back into the station, but he was actually um, first male that I ever knew, first man I ever knew that just seemed to care about me. Mm. I never had that with my dad never had a role model and you know I was a kid that was always looking for approval and it seemed to be coming from a place I never expected it to come from was just somebody caring about me and so when I when they uh, uh, came to get me I should say or transfer me um, they actually took me to juvenile home from there but I couldn't stop thinking about that time I had with that police officer and and I wanted to, to be like him and that just kind of made an imprint on my heart, and I ended up going into a, a juvenile home for a while, and then I went to foster care. And I was just about 13, get pretty close to the age of 13 by then. I went to live with a young couple, a high school math teacher. His wife was a professional. Um, he was an athlete. He was a coach, and I was a kid who had a lot of energy and loved sports, and he got me going, and, and those types of things taught me the value of education. So during my teen years, I began to excel in, in, in sports, athletically, academically. Um, anything I could touch and get approval from adults, I, I just did that. That became I became an approval addict, so to speak. And then I began to go on this this uh, this man-made mission that I had created of my own to become a police officer, and that became a goal for me in my life. And so I, I finished high school, I went to college, I studied criminal justice. I actually got a job working uh, my junior year of college. Maybe it was my sophomore year. I got a, a part-time job working in the same juvie, juvie home where I had I had been as a kid locked up years before. Wow. 
And I became an intake worker where I got to work with kids who were troubled too. And, and so I could relate to them to some extent. But I also had this mission to become a police officer. And so I graduated from college, uh, took the entrance exams for Michigan and Indiana State Police. And Michigan wasn't hiring, so I ended up going to Indiana. Uh, got my degree in criminal justice and off I went and attended the uh, 40th recruit class of the Indiana State Police, uh, which is located in Plainfield, Indiana. Graduated after about 16 weeks, and then uh, in the spring of 1981, I got my first appointment to the uh, Indiana State Police Post District Headquarters in Evansville, Indiana. And it was there uh, where I began to get myself recognized. Um, I made some notable arrests. I actually uh, was recognized by the superintendent of the state police at a couple of different press conferences with one or two of my comrades uh, just for the, the number of arrests we had made in that district in a two-year period. What does that mean? So were you a detective? Is that like... So how do you get recognized? Is it just by putting the handcuffs on or is it because you did some investigative work or what made you stand out? Because there's people that know what you're talking about, but they don't really understand how the recognition got to you. Well, at that time in my career, numbers were seemed to be important. And I had a significant number of arrests, especially, um, but I was a road officer. I did some investigative work, but I worked with detectives as well. So I, I was responsible for probably over 150 felony arrests, at least my first couple of years as an officer. Um, and, and that's pretty substantial. And I also was involved in at least one incident with uh, a wanted parole violator that was actually in the commission of a crime um, with a woman that was being held hostage. And I had to chase this guy down, uh, fight with him, uh, bring him back into custody. And, and that was quite a quite a battle too, but I got some recognition because of these things that happened in my career from, from my superiors. And, right. and because of that, they assigned me to the governor's detail. So being assigned to the governor's detail, is that because you had so much recognition, is that kind of a promotion or is that just kind of a badge of honor saying, because we trust you so much, here's the highest pointed position that you can have in your role? Well, I think it's a little bit of all those things. Um, you know, when you work in the district at that time, I don't know, I'm thinking we had maybe 50 to 60 officers and you, you have a pool of officers that are a part of that detail. They favor some of us more than others to be a part of that detail. Why I ended up with a governor exclusively when the rest of the detail might be working with his family, I, I can't explain that. But I was I was proud and happy to do that. And so my assignments were basically to pick the governor up uh, when he flew in on his private jet, because the governor at that time um, was John Orr from Evansville, Indiana. And I would pick him up uh, at his private hangar when he came in from, from uh, Indianapolis. I would escort him wherever he wanted to go. I would uh, attend political functions with him just in a suit and tie and be sure. his shadow. And that became just a part of my life uh, as, a, as a state trooper. Sure. And I continued to do the other things I did just to excel and achieve and continue to take down as many bad guys as I could. Well, this is the this is the really tricky part of the story because I'm about three to four years into my career. I wanted to uh, now I'm stationed in Evansville, which is way down south. I mean, you're right on the uh, 
Ohio River across from Kentucky on one side, Illinois on the other. And and I had I had a longing to get back north closer to my some of my family in Michigan, which was my mother. My mother and I had reestablished our relationship years years late uh, earlier, I should say, during my my teen years when I was in foster care. We we began to establish a new relationship and. And by the way, my mother got saved at that time. She became a head over heels Christian, got remarried again, and she serves uh, God today. And her and her husband have just celebrated 45 years, her and my my stepdad. And just really thankful to God for that. Mm -hmm. But shooting forward, um, I wanted to get closer to my family. So I was able to arrange for a transfer with another trooper that I actually went to school with. And we basically did a switch, a flip-flop. So he came down to Evansville. And I went north to uh, South Bend, Indiana, and I was assigned to the uh, Granger Toll Road Post at that time. On my first year there, I just kind of continued, I, I guess I could call it a rampage, but I continued this this mission. I, I really believe I was kind of on a self-made mission, and I continued that for the at least the first year uh, I was there. Self-made mission meaning what? To take down as many bad guys okay, as possible. Okay, gotcha. All right. You were the crusader. That's what I was. And I, I think in, a, in somewhere in my heart, there was a part of me, and I've told this before, that even though there was always the little boy in me that loved my dad, there was a part of me that hated him. And matter of fact, when I was in the police academy, he was in prison at the time. But I'm about a year or so into my career in uh, South Bend, and things are going well. I'm getting more letters. I, I got some thank you letters. Uh, even from the lieutenant governor and the governor, I think the governor had given me some thank thank yous as well. Um, just even though I was gone from from uh, our previous station, but I continued to just kind of make myself known. But I just worked really hard. This identity to be a police officer, to be a state trooper, was something I had wanted all my life, and it was the only identity I, I knew. I didn't know God. I didn't go to church. I had a mom that was praying for me. But I was on my own mission and probably about a year and a half to two years. So we're looking at maybe about five years into my career. Lo and behold, who shows up in my life is my father. Now, mm. my father had just gotten out of prison, came down to South Bend to see me, wanted to spend time with me. And so my dad came and spent a week with me. And and during those that that weekend he was with me, I took him with me on the job just to kind of show him what it was like. Wait, wait, wait. What, what was it like when you first saw your dad? Because you hadn't seen him in a while, right? I hadn't seen him in um I hadn't seen him in a few years. Okay, so um, unannounced, he comes into your life, right? And mm -hmm. and so what was that like? What was going on inside of you? Well, you know, inside I'm thinking, you know. I'm finally going to get the approval I've been searching for all my life. I'm finally going to get that. I'm so proud of you, you know, that you've got what it takes. Yeah. And, um, and matter of fact, that weekend, my father told me he was really proud of me, but when he did that, I didn't believe it internally. Huh. And also being a kid who came from a lot of trauma that I had never dealt with, um, something happened. I guess you could say that I got triggered emotionally internally. And after my dad left that weekend, something began to change inside of me that at the time I couldn't I couldn't describe it. I couldn't control it. But it was uh, anxiety. It was pain. And I began to medicate that by drinking. And I started out just drinking alcohol after after the job at night when I'd go home. And but that escalated. I began to drink more and more to, to drown out this pain I couldn't explain. 
And I was not a man who really trusted anybody. And that came from my background as well. And so I tried to deal with this on my own, but it just continued to grow and get worse. And I, I realized today now that I was, I was basically acting out of this, this trauma that I had never dealt with. Well, that grow, grew or escalated into um, not only taking alcohol, but it escalated to drugs, soft drugs at first. And then, then I started rolling drug dealers. And, and here's, you know, here's a decorated officer. Now I'm out on the road late at night. I'm stopping these guys who are carrying drugs and, you know, I'm rolling them over, taking cut, their money. Cut me in, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it doesn't take long before something happens or somebody drops a dime, so to speak, to make a call and an internal investigation comes, uh-huh. comes along. Uh-huh. And when that happened, uh, I basically panicked. I shut down. I wouldn't talk. I had to hire a lawyer. I went through this administrative process where it basically was suspended with pay. I ended up resigning my post as an officer, and I, I left I left Indiana and came back to Michigan. So all this time with a mission, with a purpose, an identity, and now I have nothing. And so I come back to him. John, so now you, you went from decorated cop to dirty cop, and now you're mm-hmm. not a cop at all. So... Uh, really quickly, what happens next that gets you in prison? Well, I came back to Michigan. Um, the the anger anger began to surface as well uh, as part of my acting out. And as I grew angrier, I began. I basically blamed everybody else. I blamed the whole world for my problems. This escalated into me. Now I'm taking cocaine. Now I'm using cocaine, and I'm not even a policeman anymore. I'm carrying a gun, and I start committing safe burglaries in the state of Michigan which is a life offense. And so over, uh, over a certain period of time, I'm committing safe burglaries. And before you know it, finally, uh, uh, the law catches up with me during the actual commission of, of a burglary at night. And I get arrested. I end up in jail. I actually end up going to prison for about 18 months because of the gun. Then I get sent to a halfway house for a short period. I get paroled. I have no... No life mission, no purpose, nothing really changes for me. I'm out about 18 months, get off parole, and then I go back to the same routine. And I try try to make it in life. I give up. I go back to the drinking, the drugging, and then back on the crime spree. Now, this time I went on like a three-county crime spree. And by the time uh, the law did catch up with me this time, it was pretty bad Mm. because they brought a lot of charges against me that were going to put me away for life. And for the first time in my life, I knew my life was over in one way or the other, and I wanted to end it. Mm-hmm. But it was during that time that the prayers of my mother began to come back to my mind. The, uh, all the things she said to me about there's a God out there that loves you and has a, a plan for your life, and he, he's got a purpose for you. I began to remember those things. And somehow in my mind, I realized that, that if I didn't surrender my life to somebody else, it was never going to change and then I'd end up dead or spending the rest of my life in prison. And so I committed my life to Christ in, in a jail in March of 1992. And then I prepared for the long journey ahead as uh, I went to be sentenced and go to prison. Uh, I was for life. Is that, yeah, that's what you yeah. were expecting right? to go to prison for life? <laughs> well, well, they, they did give me a plea deal, but I had to plead to being a habitual offender, which is which is there's no good time, it's flat time. So they could have given me fifth, about 15 years at least, 
And the judge, in his eyes, was lenient. He gave me eight to fifteen years. I thought I thought my life was over because eight years just to start sounds like a long time. Yeah. But it was really the beginning of my new life and my new journey in Christ. And and God used those eight years through my prison experience to really change my heart and to change the man I was going to become. So what changed, John? I'm curious. Was it it just a prayer that says, okay, God, I'm going to trust you now that I'm going to go to prison because I have nothing else to trust? Or what what created a transformation in you that is so significant that you've created your own ministry out of it? Yeah. The initial, the initial, initially it was because I had no one else to trust but God. And somehow in my heart, I, I can't even explain that today, but somehow in my heart I knew God was real. And I think that was because of the example that my mother had set for me uh, the years prior to that when she'd been praying for me. Somehow, you know, I saw her, her faith in action and that really connected to my heart. And that's where the commitment to Christ came through. And that's what changed things for me. So by the time I got out of prison, after having networked with a lot of people inside and outside of the prison system, and having been exposed to a lot of things, uh, a lot of ministries, including Chuck Colson and his ministry, uh, my heart really changed as a person. But still, you know, still I was still deeply wounded internally, still had a lot of trauma I had not yet dealt with, although externally. I had committed my life to Christ, and there was a heart change internally, of course, there had to be for me to change. And then I got married in the year 2000, I met my wife, and lo and behold, um, my father shows up in my life. Now, part of the story I didn't mention here, we'll go back just a little bit, but about 10 years, it had been 10 years since I saw my father. And the last time I'd seen my father previous to this was he's standing outside of a courthouse uh, watching me as I'm being hauled away in a, in a prison van, so to speak, you know, in shackles and handcuffs. Yeah. Never came to see me, never called me, never wrote a letter. Um, I had not seen my father. But in 10 years, uh, here he is one day. I see him at an auto repair shop, which I have a half-brother. He got remarried. And uh, I ran to my dad. I threw my arms around him. I started hugging him and loving on him and <laughs> identifying myself. Hey, Aunt, this is your son, John. And dad, I love you. And hey, I'm a Christian now. And I got this beautiful wife. And I was probably a rambling uh, maniac, but uh, he looked shocked, like white as a ghost, like he didn't even recognize me. And I really mm-hmm. believe that day he didn't even know his own son because I was, you know, as a believer then, uh, 2 Corinthians so, 5 17. So says, different. You're a new man, and he didn't recognize the new man. And so that was the beginning of something new between me and my father. And for the next few years, I began to pray for him. Um, I didn't spend much time with him because he was a loner, and he was a con man in every every sense of the word. If I offered to, uh, you know, pray for him, he said, "Oh no, I'm good, I'm good." And that was always his that was his way of kind of dealing with things. Or he'd use he would joke, he would make jokes about things, and that. And that was kind of the mask he wore to, to cover up for how he really felt. John, did, did but, it seem odd to you that he never visited you when you were in prison, given that he has had that experience and knows what it's like to be on the inside? So, somehow at that time, you know, I really wasn't surprised. Mm. Um, because my father, his pattern of life was always using people, even his own children. And, and as I grew up through my teen years and that, when I did, when my father did kind of pop in and out of my life, it was usually because he wanted something. Yeah, sure. You didn't have anything you could give him while you were in prison. Exactly. Yeah. And so there was there was no benefit for him, so there he wouldn't come to see me, and I never saw him. Yeah. But it didn't matter to me now. I'm a believer. I loved him. I cared about him, and I wanted to do something for him. 
he would only let me do so much so I could pray for him. And a few years uh, after that, he started to have some issues uh, with dementia. He actually ended up going to a nursing home. He actually went to a few nursing homes. I say it's the revolving nursing homes because, you know, here's an old ex-con. He's trying to pick fights with the other old guys at the nursing home. And imagine that, you know, seeing uh, seeing some, some guy 70 years old or whatever in the nursing home and chow, and he's trying to pick a fight with one of the other guys in a wheelchair. <laughs> Check your dentures at the door. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, John, but, uh, I, I, I kind of want to fast forward this a little bit. So yeah. what, what is that uh, moment between you, your dad, and that leads you to a certain place that ha- gives you this aha moment that leads to your mm-hmm. ministry? Yeah, that happened when God did some healing of my own heart. And I really felt God speaking to me to go see your father. You need to go see your father. And, and that was the moment for me. My father was in a nursing home at this time where he had stayed for a while. And I went there. And when I went to see my dad, I showed up at the door. There he was sitting in a chair looking and he looked at me and said, John, I've been thinking about you. And, and I said, Dad, I've been thinking about you, too. And I went and sat down and I took my dad's hand to tell him, Dad, I, I'm here today because God sent me to see you to tell you you're going to die. And if I die today, I know I'm going. But, Dad, if you die today, I want you to know where you're going. In that moment, I prayed with my dad for the first time in my life and led my dad to Christ that day. And then for the next year of his life, I went back to that place every every week to, to minister to my dad, to disciple him, to, to see him baptized. And right up to the day of his death, um, I had some profound, proud moments with my father. Mm. And I was able to tell my father about a week before I died, when I went to see him, how proud I was to be his son. For the first time in my life, I was able to say that and mean it. And my dad received that with gladness. And he told me he was so happy that I was proud to be his son. Mm. Now, that was a turning point for me, because at that time, that's when I actually started to feel God tugging on my heart to tell the story. And I started writing my book. And then as a result of that, we started Father's Love Ministries, and I began to speak. So um, uh, you're, you're speaking. What is your core message to people listening to you right now, John? The core message for me is, is actually a quote that comes from Shawshank Redemption, that fear can hold you hostage, but hope can set you free. Because fear, fear was the core thing that held me back all my life. It, now, I seem to be, you know, because I was an overachiever, you'd think, well, he's not afraid of anything. Here's a guy who's always pursuing things. But but there were certain things that I was totally afraid of that I would not deal with and that I would just turn around and run in the other direction. But but that became a focal point for me in my life and, and, the, and in my ministry as well. And so my message became one of focusing on how do we get past our fears? How do we go walk into that? What does that look like? And for me, it came down to finding that out by dealing with some of my own trauma. And and by dealing with my own trauma, I went to some different doctors. And I found a great therapist who walked through this with me. I had to relive all this childhood trauma, which was tough. But the turning point in my life came when I had my own shack experience, which was revisiting the home that I grew up in as a kid where the worst uh, violence and trauma of my life took place. And it was during that, it was that trip 
when I had to walk into that fear, that place I had always dreaded going back to, that I took that bold step and God walked with me this time. And I knew he was there with me. And that's when I heard his voice just say to me for the first time, it can't hurt you anymore. And at that moment in time when I, is when I realized that to walk through any type of fear, I have to trust God and I have to ask him to walk with me. And that changed everything for me. So, John, what I hear, what I heard you say is that the that fear holds you hostage. Um, so, if someone who is being held by uh, being held hostage by fear right now, and they want to get out of that, what what does that look like? For me, it was trauma. Now I realize there's we've got people all over the planet today walking around who've had some kind of trauma in their life, and that trauma may be holding them back. That may be the fear holding them back. Um, there could be other reasons too, but for for me, freedom was having the courage, and it was tough because I couldn't do it on my own, but it was having the courage to really trust God, to walk into that fear, to be able to face it. For me, the change was, it came when I realized that when I finally took that bold step to confront that fear and to to walk into that, when the worst that I could possibly imagine actually didn't happen because God was right there with me. And he was there to not only comfort me, but give me the strength and the reassurance that I could do this. But the thing is, it wasn't just me doing it. It was him doing it through me. Mm -hmm. And that's what changed everything for me. That actually gave me a whole new type of freedom to be able to actually express myself for the first time, to actually imagine, say the things in a conversation that you often think about saying, but you don't want to say, or you might not say just because, you know, fear holds you back. And there came a point where I had to let go of my approval addiction and realize that, you know, my approval only comes from one and that's from the man upstairs. And I had and, and I trusted him to the extent that I was willing to just boldly walk forward. And that involved uh, it changed a lot of things for me. Not only did it bring freedom to my heart, but it actually I think in some ways it kind of changed my personalities because when I get into conversations now with especially with small groups of guys or whatever, and we're talking, um, you know, somebody might ask a question, whatever the case may be. And some guys don't necessarily feel comfortable about answering something personal or maybe how we really feel about a, a certain subject or situation. But I just matter of fact, I just kind of jump right in now and just I say what I really feel. And but but also I do it not cautiously, but. Also, I do it with uh, a concern for others, too. I think it's important that when we do, when we have to face fear, when we want to walk through a spot in our life or a place where we really, we really long for freedom in a certain area of our life, and especially if it's in a relationship that may be broken down, could even be a marriage relationship. I, and I've had this in my own marriage, too, where God has really changed the whole picture for me because... I don't act based on what I think the results are going to be anymore. I don't. I don't worry about that. Hang on. Let me let me ask you something because you you, you said something important and you and and I'm summarizing. So correct me if I'm wrong. But what I heard you say is that you have to confront your fear to find freedom. Is that right? That's exactly it, right there. So if you conf if someone confronts their fear to find their freedom, um, I. I 
and this is coming from someone who who obsessively feels like I have to conquer fears. Like you know, I, I have a t- I'm terrified of heights, so I went solo skydiving. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I, I I personally know, but I want to hear from you. Uh, what happens when people confront their fears and try to find freedom? Is there a cost to it? There can be a cost, I believe. There's sometimes there is. I mean, there's a risk involved, of course. And you have to be willing to see what the risk is, but also you have to look to the other side to see the value of freedom. You know, which is greater, the risk or the actual freedom? For me, the, the bottom line is the freedom. I want the freedom. There's yeah, maybe it's not be... so much cost of freedom, it's cost of fear. Exactly. And the hope is that, and the hope is what keeps that alive. Uh, the hope, and it's kind of a stair. Look at it as a staircase. The hope can be just a thought or a feeling at the time, but there's a progression of going from hope to freedom. Because if you think of it in terms of a staircase and taking one step at a time as you're climbing up, I mean, you could get halfway up, but then you might get you might allow fear to uh, overtake you and then turn around and go back down to where yeah. you were. And then you're but caught in a cycle, right? Exactly. And, and so it never changes. Yeah. But if you continue climbing and if you look ahead, just keep looking ahead to the freedom that's at the end of that stairway and you keep climbing and moving forward, you're going to make it. Believe me, you're going to make it. I know. Yeah. Now, John, I know a lot of people um, who've gone through parental or childhood trauma. Uh, there may be quite a number that are listening to this podcast today. What's what kind of bold idea step would you give them to consider? I think that um, once we look inside of ourselves, and sometimes it's a hard thing to do, and examine the reality of where's our heart at. I think it starts right with the heart, because our hearts. I mean, I really look at you know my heart is just something that God really holds in His hands, and especially with people who've had trauma. If you look at the heart like it's a piece of like it's a glass, you know, a lot of times our hearts get shattered and there's pieces that are broken all over the place place. And God, what he does is he picks it up. He begins to put it back together piece by piece. He begins to heal these places in your heart. And I believe it's really starts with an examination of your heart Mm. and where you're at. And a lot of people, they need help to take that extra step. Mm. Uh, because they don't know how, how do I get from this fear to my freedom? And I think it comes from community. I think it comes from getting around other people who may have dealt with the same situation or maybe the same fears. Um, I know in a lot of men's groups, because I, I network with a lot of different men's ministries, it really, uh, it reinforces, um, it reinforces your, I believe, your strength. I believe it empowers you as a man when you get around a group of good men and you're able to get to these deep, dark places and talk about these fears. And, and you're able to share that and you're in a community where it's safe and, and other men can share, hey, how did I, how was I able to get past my, my uh, fear? How, t- how, how did I finally get to that place of freedom um, where I can move ahead now and I can continue to keep climbing instead of retreating in my life. Yeah. Well, those suggestions you have of, of uh, starting with examining your own heart and getting into a community with others that might have had the same experiences, 
those two things themselves can be fearful right there. You comp- conquer that and you're well on your way probably. Yeah, they, they can be. And, and actually, you know, sometimes even, even in a smaller group, one-on-one, maybe two or three guys too, is an easier avenue to go. Yeah. Um, because some guys aren't comfortable in, you know, going to a big group of men. So John, if our listeners want to find out more about you and your ministry, where should they, where should they go? Yeah. Uh, they can go to flministry.net. That's for Father's Love Ministry. So flministry.net. And they can contact me at info at flministry.net. Or they can just go to our website, browse around. Uh, we have a contact uh, link on our website, too. That's great. We'll have the, that link in our show notes, along with a link to your book, Inside Out, A Father's Love, for our listeners to be able to get a hold of that. Because that tells the whole background of your life journey, doesn't it? Yeah, they, that tells the whole story. It's all the gritty, uh, all the dirty, all the good, and all the bad. Well, I was reading some of the reviews on Amazon, and uh, and I know that they were touching for people. I mean, there was a number of reviews that were just like, wow, this is like blow away stuff here. So uh, kudos on that, John, and uh, grace to you as you take what uh, what the locusts have eaten in your own life and seeing that uh, that, that uh, be revived in the fruit of God's grace and all the things that you're doing to to help others. So Thank you for that, and thank you for the bold steps that you've taken and for appearing on our podcast. We really appreciate it. And thanks to you, Larry, and to you, Armin, for having me. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks again, John. You're welcome. Okay, Armin, we have in John's story a life of twisty passages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and a lot of grace and a lot of bold idea nuggets, I think, to pull out of this. Right. Uh, one thing that always stands out to me in stories like this is the desperation um, that uh, we have as people to get the attention from the people that we love or get the approval from the people that we love or to just to have the care that we want to have from the people that we love. And by not getting that, the types of outcomes that it creates, that it, it's, but we always say want you know, I wanted their approval or I wanted their attention or I wanted them to care for me. But it it really is a necessity. It's a need. It's a children have to have that attention. They have to have that approval and they have to have that feeling like I care. Well, no matter how it is that we do it and without it, I mean, these stories when you hear a past like that and then you hear about the future like that, I don't think people are actually that shocked. You, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Like John's story is boring. It's the furthest thing from boring. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying, like, I, I don't think people are shocked anymore when they hear someone had a terrible childhood that they had ended up having a criminal outcome or a criminal Oh, I see life, what you're saying. Right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost expected now. And uh, it's just, but no matter how many times people hear these stories, it's just, it baffles me that children are still left without their approval of their fathers. Like father absence is one of the craziest needs in this world. And that's something that Art talked about in our last episode. Yes, exactly right, Armin. And there's, um, boy, there's so many different threads I want to talk about as I was just listening to his story because there's so many experiences in my own life of disappointment with my own dad and and feeling like the detachment and things that, and yet, you know, my dad was not abusive in the way that his dad was. Right. Right. He wasn't a criminal in the way his dad was, 
but I think all of it, it becomes a spectrum, right? Where yeah. we all are, and many of us, many of us men and maybe women as well, who have wanted to hear from their father and maybe even from their mother uh, that uh, you, you did well, mm-hmm. well done. Yeah. You know, and, and for those of us who've not received that, I don't, I have never received that from my dad and I don't recall ever receiving and I love you from my dad. Um, you know, I can listen to a story like John's and I can, I can almost become entranced in it because there's a part of me that is going there too, or has gone there too, not quite to the degree that he acted out Mm -hmm. and uh, becoming like his dad, but certainly there's an identification with that longing. Yeah. And, you know, as an adult, it hit me one day when I was, <laughs> I was at a Chinese restaurant and I laugh because we both know when we were doing John's the breakfast, we were doing the warm up for John to get the recording right. We asked him, what did he have for breakfast? And he laughed and he said, I had Chinese food, you know, so, <laughs> so we shared a good chuckle about that. But, um, I got a fortune cookie one time and I opened up the fortune and it said, someone, you know, believes in you. And this is just a fortune cookie, but it kind of made me feel pretty good about myself. You know, I was like, wow, I wonder who it could be, <laughs> you know? Better than my fortune cookies. I get the blank ones. <laughs> yeah, or, or the one that says, you know, 99 cents off the next purchase of your, you know, whatever. But, you know, um, I think it hits a core longing that we all have. We yeah. all want to hear from our parents that um, that they believe in us. And I think mm-hmm. that's the power of mentorship as well, because in many ways, a mentor acts as kind of a surrogate parent and is like, I, I believe in you. Yeah. And when you look back at John's life, as he describes that police officer, I mean, he saw in that police officer someone who took interest in him. And right? if you take interest in someone, doesn't that say that maybe I'm worth taking interest in? Mm. And so for the first time, John may have seen somebody take interest in him and the translation is you're worth my taking interest right how significant is that though let's i mean let's process that for a second this officer didn't spend five years with him didn't spend a year with him didn't spend every week ministering to him the the officer and john had a one day maybe two day interaction with each other and it left such an a significant impact Impression. on John yeah. that he became a police officer and he became a community servant and he became a decorated one at that. Right. And he was on, uh, he was on the path to becoming chief or becoming a captain. Right. I mean, he, he was on that path. I mean, seeing his dad obviously derailed that, but that one interaction that that, or that two interactions that that police officer had left that significant of an impact. And I think we're so often have this mindset that we believe that we have to spend a lifetime or years and years with someone to have real impact on them. But every single interaction can leave a an eternal mark on someone. But I, I, I don't think we can ever fully grasp that because we always want to see the fruits of our labor. And sometimes I don't think that's how God works is that no, he just uses little, you to plant the seed. The seed could be there. Now, I think there's two like significant takeaways. I mean, right. obviously there's a takeaway if you're a parent, how important it is to invest confidence and and uh, you know, assurance that, you know, y- your child is loved by you, mm-hmm. you know, that you are communicating to them that they are valuable, they're important and, and to pour into them in that way, because, you know, I'm not saying that they'll go live a life of crime. I didn't when I didn't get that. You just didn't get you know, caught, maybe. My, my, mileage, <laughs> mileage, all right, I won't go there. My, I can't go there because otherwise I might get caught, right? <laughs> mileage might vary, right? But I think the more significant thing for us to think about if we're really practicing how can we step out of our comfort zone and 
and look at the, the opportunities that God gives us with a bold idea, maybe it's simply this, is to become aware of those people in our midst who are in need. And now certainly that police officer seeing a 12-year-old who's 150 miles from home, sitting in a car, driving it by himself, if that doesn't scream, here's a kid in need, I don't know what does, right? <laughs> so I'm guessing that police officer had been around the block, so to speak, yeah, and knows times. what that looks like and said, you know, some in some way I'm going to invest interest in. And then as you pointed out, change the course of his life. And how many opportunities are there for us to do that as well? Yeah. We just need to be aware that there are always people around. You remember Art talking last week about machines, you know, right. and we got to stop seeing people as machines yeah. and start seeing them as people who may have holes in their heart that need to be filled. Now, I want to talk about a story because when I was listening to uh, John speak, I was reminded of Ernest Hemingway's uh, story where he uh, tells a story about a father with his teenager son who ran away from home. And, uh, and he, was, he was looking for him. The father was looking for the son all over Spain and, and could not find him. And finally, um, in a fit of desperation, in Madrid, he takes out an ad in the paper, and the ad read, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday, all is forgiven, Papa. And that's all the ad. And he was hoping that his son would read that. Hmm. What he didn't expect was when he went to the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday, there were 800 young boys, all named Paco, (laughs) gathered for them to receive that forgiveness from their father. And you see, that's, I think, the the, story of what is in every young boy's heart, perhaps every young girl's heart as well, is this desire to just connect with dad. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it's, a, it's a powerful motivator. It is a really powerful motivator. Mm. And if you think about the, the, you know, we can talk about, as Art did, the urban uh, challenges where there's so much fatherless, but there's also wounding kind of across the spectrum. Mm. I mean, we can say in our comfort zone and our rabbit trails, as Art talked about last week, or we, can, or we can just see it where we're at and still decide, hey, I'm going to invest a good word of encouragement. I'm going to take time to notice someone else. I'm going to yeah. invest in their life. And to me, that's a bold idea. Yeah. And, and, and one last takeaway is I, I love how much bigger God's redemption is than meets the eye sometime, oh, yeah. right? That, yeah, isn't that good? We always see the redemption in the person that became the criminal or the prisoner or whatever, but... I love how John focuses so much of the redemption story on his father, right? Like he was used to bring his father and show his father love and show his father, his God's love. And, Uh, you know, and he talked about, he talked about fear. And and I think one of the hardest things that I found in talking to guys is, is in talking in, in having guys talk to their fathers that they don't necessarily yeah. have a relationship with, but to do what John did, which is to say, you know what, I want to talk to you about the most important thing in my life, and that's my relationship with God and mm. relationship with Jesus. Mm. And I want you to experience that same thing, and I don't know where you're at. That is a scary conversation yeah. for a boy who is, or a young man or an old man, <laughs> you know, in my case, to, to have with his dad. Yeah. In, and and John did that, and I think serves as a great role model. And I, and I would just say, you know, my dad's passed away now, but I think any any man who has any estranged relationship with your father, go see your dad. Yeah, come won't be around here. forever. Yep. And the time is now. Yep. And this is the day of salvation, 
when you hear God's voice prompting you, you go and talk to your dad and 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 make it right, make That's it square. Right. And even if there isn't anything that you've done wrong, you have an opportunity to sow a word of grace. And John was a great example of that. That's right. I, yep, I can't, I couldn't add anything else to that. That's right on. Well, we hope that you found some inspiration in John's story as we did, and we'd love to hear your response to that and any of the comments that you might have about this show to do that. Find our show notes at boldideapodcast.com slash 50 because this is episode 50 now, and we want to uh, invite you to check out that uh, show link, and also you will find links to John's website and his Amazon book and and all the rest. Of course, we'd love for you to leave a comment at that link or call us on our show line at 612-568-IDEA, 612-568-4332. So this is Larry Gates. And Armin Asadi. And we're saying until next time, just go, trust God, and uh, find new ways to step outside your comfort zone, conquer the fear that's holding you back, and be a blessing to others. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Bold Idea Podcast. To get our show notes sent to your inbox, visit boldideapodcast.com.